Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Thank you so much for deciding to spend a little bit of time with me. It is, I can't believe, August, 2nd of August, when this episode is being released. Only six more days until the 8th of August, which will be the one-year anniversary of this podcast. Crazy, crazy. And I haven't had much time off, actually. So there's certainly a lot of content out there. I don't want to take up too much of your time because it is a reasonably long episode, a bit over over an hour with Alan from Self-Care for Teachers. It's a really supportive episode. It gives a lot of practical tips to support you as a teacher in prioritizing your well-being and exercising self-compassion. And even if you're not a teacher, actually, I think that you'll get something out of this. You can probably hear that my voice is not at its normal. I have been struggling constantly with colds and just illness And you can hear it actually in the episode. I think I have a blocked nose in the episode there, whereas at the moment I've just got a sore throat. And I don't know if it's the kids bringing things home from daycare, whether it's me picking things up from school, but we've only just come out of our fifth lockdown in Melbourne and I still can't seem to shake it. So it's a really good episode even for me to consider what I need to really prioritize. And I think for me, it's definitely sleep and nutrition. They're the two big things for me that if I'm on track with those, everything does seem a bit easier. But you'll hear more from Ellen. Have a look at the show notes. Make sure you connect with her on Instagram. She has her own podcast, Self-Care for Teachers, and it's fantastic. The only housekeeping thing I wanted to say was that because it is coming up to the year of this podcast, I am going to be reducing where I publish this podcast on. And so I'm not going to be renewing my subscription to Podbean. So if you listen to it on Podbean, this will probably be your last episode on that. So please switch over to Spotify or Apple or another one of the platforms. There's so many of them and listen on there because this, as I said, will be your last episode on Podbean. If you would like to support the podcast, feel free to buy me a virtual coffee. If you don't want to spend any money, please share the podcast and social media, tag myself at Educating Laura and Alan at Self-Care for Teachers. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Alan. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm well today, which is nice. Thanks for having me. Good, good. If anyone has been following Alan's journey, she is five months pregnant and has had some pretty serious morning sickness. Would you like to tell us about... The condition that you had so I'd love to talk yeah. about the fact that it's not just feeling a bit sick in yes. the morning yeah it's not your regular morning sickness it's called hyperemesis gravidarum which basically means extreme vomiting in pregnancy and it you may have heard you may remember if you were following you know Kate Middleton the Duchess of Cambridge's pregnancy yeah. she was hospitalized with the same thing so I, I managed to stay out of hospital thankfully but it's very extreme morning sickness it's not really morning sickness it's all day and 
lots and lots and lots of vomiting and a, a, lots of other fun symptoms like hypersalivation and stuff, which is just gross. <laughs> um, yeah, right. So, yeah, very, very, pretty much incapacitated for two months basically. So, and then probably it's taken me about six weeks after that where I'm still unwell. I'm still getting nausea daily, but I think this is probably what normal morning sickness is like where I'm func- I'm functional. <laughs> um, just yes. a little bit crook, but yeah, so it's been rough, but um, we're excited for the next chapter now that we're, now that I'm getting, getting yeah. uh, to eat properly and actually feel yeah. like I can live my life again. Yeah. We were talking just before recording about the fact that I had this with my daughter and my mum always talks about this, that nothing tasted right mm-hmm. in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I remember everything I would crave, I would eat it. And then I'm like, oh, I'm not satisfied by that at all. And then once I'd had the baby, I'm like, that, that's what that tastes like. I forgot. It's so funny what hormones can do. Oh, they're very powerful. Very powerful. Mm. <laughs> I'd love to start asking you about the path you took directly after school. Like, What did mm. that look like for you? Like when I finished grade 12, I went to Italy on a six-month um, student exchange and yep. then came home, and, and which was amazing, really like really transformative in my life. I didn't speak Italian when I got there. Um, <laughs> I sort of spoke Italian wow. by the end. <laughs> yeah. um, and right. I I ate my way through a lot of pizza and pasta and uh, ice cream, which was wonderful, especially because I later in life developed <laughs> gluten <laughs> issues. So I feel like I've had my fill of oh, gluten. No. So that was yeah, a good right. choice. Um, and then I yeah. came home and I just, you know, I just worked for six months um, till the end of end of that year and then I went to uni to study a Japanese immersion teaching degree at Central Queensland University in Rockhampton in Queensland. So why Japanese? You mean you went to Italy and then going back to Japanese? Yeah well it was the other way around. I knew I was going to do Japanese at uni so I didn't want to go to Japan because I knew that was going to be part of my ah. degree so I wanted to go somewhere else. I love yeah. languages. Um, I'd, I'd done Japanese yeah. all through school and really absolutely loved it and but I wanted to I wanted to learn a new language and I was like well the food's good I'll go there (laughs) (laughs) perfect perfect and where in Italy were you based um so I was in a place called Carpi which is near Modena near Bologna um sort of in the middle north not all the way in the north sort of like halfway between Rome and Milan sort of Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And did you do a lot of travelling around while you were there as well? Well, I was going to school. So I did get to go yeah. on a school camp to Prague, as you do when you're European, <laughs> which yeah. was pretty cool, except that all the tour guides yeah, yeah. were in Italian and I didn't speak Italian. But that was I still got to oh, go cool. and appreciate the um, scenery yeah. and stuff. And yeah. so I didn't, I didn't really get to do, like, it wasn't a travel holiday. It was a school holiday. But I also... I loved that about it because I, I lived with a family, still in touch with them today, really felt like I I got to experience what normal life was like, which is kind of what I wanted. We, you know, we went to Rome, we went to Florence, we went to Venice, we you know, we did a few little weekend trips here and there. And so I, I've done a bit of travel in my life, but it was more a, a, an exercise in learning the language and finding yeah. out what life was like on the other side of the world for like normal people, not when yeah. you're on a, on a tourist trip where you just go and see the sights right. and then you leave. That's, I, I did a great. similar thing. I went to university in England for six months for the same reason. I didn't want to just go and travel. Cool. I wanted to go and be there for a reason. So I completely understand that. Yeah. And just immerse yeah. yourself in what it's like in this place. Yes. So you knew you wanted to do Japanese. You knew you wanted to go into teaching. Why did you want to go into that degree? 
Well, I didn't actually want to go into teaching when I selected the Japanese degree. It just came mm-hmm. with it. <laughs> it was a Japanese degree that, that came, like was a Japanese teaching degree. Okay. I just knew I wanted the Japanese. I didn't necessarily know yep. I wanted to do the teaching side of things until I did my first teaching prac in my first year and just absolutely mm. loved it. So that was a nice confirmation that, oh, okay, I'm going to get out of this with a teaching degree and actually that I do like that. <laughs> so that was that was handy. Yes. Yeah, I didn't have I didn't have an aversion to the idea, but I wasn't like one of those people that was growing up always wanting to be a teacher. So, yeah. So, what was it in that prac that was the confirmation? Uh, I always enjoyed school. I was, you know, a good student at school. Really had a good time in the classroom generally, and so then it was being back in the classroom and being involved in learning experiences. It's just that age old thing of when when you see kids understanding stuff and figuring stuff out and it just it's just really rewarding and I just had a few of those little experiences and also feeling like oh hey I can do this I had I was really lucky with my prac teachers all throughout uni they pretty much all made me do more than the minimum requirements on the you know on the the practicum forms they all made me participate in lessons and and run little small groups and stuff even when I didn't technically have to do that until the next prac or whatever the requirements were so I really got kind of hands-on experience not just sitting at the back of the classroom feeling like a an observer the whole time and I think that was part of it because I actually had a a bit of a real go at explaining things to students and I think in that first prac I even I did get to run some lessons not the whole lesson but some you know explaining some topics and that sort of thing and and really enjoyed it I like to teach turns out yeah talking I like explaining things I I love learning so I remember in my first prep too because I did a dip ed which was only like one year and I had a five week two five week Mm. blocks and that was it and then I was a teacher so I had one week of observing and then I was just in the classroom but my supervising teachers were similar in that they're just like well here are your dot points they gave me no resources they didn't tell me how it should look Mm. like here are your dot points here's a textbook if you need it we need to do an assessment at this time and I just had to do it and it was scary, but it was really liberating yep. because I had no idea what yep. it should look like. And so I just made it up based on Absolutely. me. I try and do that if I get mm. student teachers too. Just like, this is your time. You give it a go. It can fail. It can succeed, but give it a go because this is what it will be for you. Yeah. I remember in my final year, the first day at my at the school that I was doing prac at on in my final year, the you know, my supervising teacher had been given a, a relief class, like one of the other teachers was away and we just mm-hmm. covered the class. So of course there was the written instructions of the lesson and she was like, Will you teach it? Yeah. It's not it's not my class. It was gonna be somebody, whether it was me or you or a relief yeah. teacher coming in for the day, the instructions are there, you do it. Yeah. <laughs> it was my first day at the school and I was just oh, felt yeah. like holy moly, thrown in the yeah. deep end. But I did it and it was yeah. it was fine. You it know? was fine. Yeah. It was a great experience. Scary, but fine. <laughs> So we're talking about how we're trained and things that we liked. How do you think we could support student teachers and train teachers in a way that's better or that helps them more? Yeah, well, I mean, in hindsight, and I didn't realise this until I was probably two years in, you know, into my own full-time teaching career, I actually got a really good experience um, mm. that I don't know if they still do it, but at the time I didn't do a Bachelor of Education, I did a Bachelor of Learning Management and it was I remember being through uni that I remember them talking it up like it was this new way of teaching education. And I remember thinking, oh, this is just the uni kind of spruiking themselves. But like yeah. we did prac every single year. It was a, it was a four-year degree. We did prac every single year. I did 17 weeks prac in my final year of 
teaching. Wow. So like I felt so well prepared mm. and that was at the same school. So I'd been to, you know, different schools, but that was at the same school. And just because of my health problems, I ended up having to spread it out a bit further over the years. So I actually saw, I was there on, you know, the day one in January. And then I was actually there on end of term four as well. So I saw the whole year, which, which wasn't quite normal. The terms that I did my practice were slightly unusual, yeah. but it was fantastic. And, and, and we had yeah. to do, we had to do that many practice that many weeks prac the last five weeks were an internship and then I, I remember being in my second or third year and there was a, a first year teacher who'd been to a different university who'd done the the grad dip or the dip yeah. ed and um yeah they'd done eight or ten weeks in the classroom in their whole mm-hmm. university career and they just the the comparison on their sort of first term it just sounded like they were having so much harder of a time than I did, even though, yeah. of course, first year was always hard. I felt confident to be in the classroom. All the other yeah. things, you know, behaviour management, managing it by yourself, all of that was still hard for me, but I didn't, I just felt like I was really well prepared classroom-wise. Yeah. And that was, because, I think, largely because of the amount of prac that we did in my course. Yeah. Of course, there was, a you know, a lot of theory and I just think, I think we need to have more of an apprenticeship Mm. approach where Absolutely. which is kind of what it was we did lots of prac and then and then I still had the attitude and whether this was from maybe some of my prac teachers had instilled it in me or because I got it from my university but I I still had that sense that yes okay now I'm a first year teacher but I'm still learning there was an understanding in my mind that I was still kind of in my apprenticeship and I think that yeah. made a difference too I think we I really do think we we need to think about the first couple of years, those early career years of teaching as still part of the training process. I think that would make a big difference. And of course, I I think that we also need to do a better job of talking about and giving experience with behaviour management and curriculum because a lot of it is very theory-based and then you're suddenly there doing it by yourself and you realise that some of the theory that you've learned is not apply (laughs) it's not an ideal world in this classroom that you've got in reality so I I just the real hands-on is what we need and that's what I've heard from a lot of teachers is oh I did this you know two whole semesters learning all the behavior management theories and then I was but I'd never actually done any of it and then I was by myself in a classroom with you know 28 year nine throwing chairs (laughs) yes exactly exactly and it's it all goes out the window, the theory, at the end of the day, you end up having to do something that works with your own personality, you know, because you can't. School, sometimes the school has a process. Yeah, well, that, and that's right. Yeah, there could be a school, but there also could be, you might be somebody who develops really strong relationships as part of your behavior management. You might be someone who has very strict mm. boundaries within your room and all of those are great mm. strategies. And also mm. you have to be able to give it a go and then refine. And we know that as teachers, even with curriculum, yeah. when you when you deliver something, you know that the next time you refine it because it's not exactly as you wanted it to go or there, are, there were gaps that you realised that you should have covered earlier. And so it's all well and good to tick that off in terms yeah. of the theory, but unless you're putting it into practice and having an opportunity to refine, which I think we don't have a lot of time to do in the actual job. No. And I'm sure you've seen this on Instagram. There's like a reel or something where someone says teaching is like one of the only jobs where you have to actually do all the work at home in order to do your job. Because at school, yep. there's very little time to actually... There's no time. Yeah, to refine. your photocopying mm-hmm. might be doing a little bit of marking or you're in the classroom. Or you're exactly. in the classroom. And the classroom time, you know, like I teach three days. On a f- Thursday and Friday, I have 40 minutes. 
that mm. I'm not in the classroom. So that 40 minutes is exactly. photocopying and getting my resources together. No, There's no opportunity exactly. for me to sit there and go, well, how good was my lesson today? So it is a really hard one in that in order to do your job exactly. well, you have to work outside of hours because there's no time in the day to do it. And primary teachers yeah. even more so, I think. Exactly. And then if you don't get the same year level or the same subject the next year, you have no chance to even revisit. Oh, well, yes, we we did this in term two last year and there were things that I remember, you know, I didn't get huge amounts of reflection time, but there were things that I remember didn't go as planned, so I'll do them differently this year. But no, you're on a new year level or a yep. new, completely new subject area and you just yeah. don't get to even repeat anything. So, you know, that compounds as well because then you're always kind of yeah. on the back foot figuring it out for this year yeah. for the first time and then starting over again next year. You made the comment too about knowing in your first year that you were still learning. And I think I had a similar experience because I ended up working at the school that I did one of my teaching rounds at and so my supervising teacher was my mentor teacher. And so I felt very supported and protected. Mm. How do you think... Yeah student teachers and training teachers looking at really established teachers online, how do you think that impacts what they believe is their role in those first couple of years? Because I'm online, you know, I love watching what's out there, but I also know what I will do, what I won't do, where my boundaries are, but I've been in the profession for over 12 years. I'm not sure what impact it would have had for me watching a lot of that stuff in my early years of teaching. Yeah, and I, I would say mm. I'm the same and I because I have really only discovered the teacher gram in the last – I mean, I was on Instagram, but I like I just wasn't looking yeah. at teacher stuff. So, yeah, I've really only discovered the teacher gram in the last yep. couple of years and I feel the same. I'm so glad it wasn't around when I was in my yep. early career making me com- – you know, it's just the comparison and also – it's a lot of visible stuff that's not always like because it's easy to photograph so therefore (laughs) it's all the visible stuff that that gets put online and the pretty stuff the highlights and it's not always Mm. what matters and it's not always what actually is the should be the priority and I think also because it's happening in private you know like teachers are going home at the end of the day you know early career teachers but I've I've heard this from not necessarily early career Mm. teachers too feeling frustrated and, and by the sense of comparison that they that springs up in them using using Instagram and and whatnot and looking at other teachers' stuff online, so I don't think it's just mm. early career teachers. But yes, hopefully when when you're a bit more experienced, you're a bit more comfortable going. No, 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 that's not mm. for me. <laughs> or or I can differentiate that that's a highlight reel and that's yep. that person's. They've probably had bad days mm. too. You know, like you get a bit more realistic yep. about it. But because it happens. At home in private, you know, while you're scrolling on the couch before you Mm. go to bed, it's also not something that we're necessarily talking about in the staff room. Like I saw such and such online last night and now I'm trying to recreate that because I want my classroom to look pretty like that because now I feel this sense of that my worth as a teacher isn't enough if I if my classroom doesn't look pretty. Gosh, I had the messiest (laughs) classrooms. I'm not a neat, pretty decorations person um and I'm really glad, I'm really glad I didn't have that comparison going on because I because I felt bad enough when, <laughs> when yeah. comparing to some of the teachers around me and my yeah. room was always a bit of a mess but you yeah. know what we got yeah. all learning done <laughs> you, were, you were high school weren't you high school yeah and for the majority of my career I was yeah. um, high school music so I did do Japanese um 
and I music was my second teaching area, which is pretty unusual. Um, usually you have to do a music degree, but it was, again, it was just because of the interesting, the, the Japanese immersion degree that I did at the time. Japanese had to be the major, you know, area of um, study. So music was my second teaching area. And then I taught a bit of English and history, as and, you, yeah, as you do yeah. when you're in, a, in high school and in a small regional high school where there's not yeah. a lot of teachers. So we all taught a yeah. bit of everything. And so did that mean because you're in that situation, you had your own classroom? Because I move around all the time. The only classroom that I have yes. with the one class is my year 12s. Every other class, I'm not in the same classroom more than once or twice. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a room. Okay. So there's a part of me that thinks it would be lovely to have ownership over a space and for kids to have ownership over a space. But at the same time, the fact that I don't have ownership over the space too means that there is no opportunity for comparison. So I can see both sides. Yeah. In terms of what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. And because, I mean, when I taught English, when I taught history, I was in somebody else's room or, you know, yeah. different rooms around the school, but music was was my classroom. Yeah. And I think it definitely helped in the sense that it was my room, not the, you know, sometimes the kids are in the room more than the teacher and then they sort of feel a bit more ownership than the teacher and that can be yeah. an interesting power struggle as well. That's true. But it was it was my room and I got to make it my own. So, yeah, I, I do agree with you that there is benefit in, in both sides of that because you do, when, you, when you're going from classroom to classroom, yeah, you don't necessarily get the opportunity to decorate things the way they look on Instagram. So, well, we just won't even... Won't even compare there because it's not an option. Yeah, and I, I do think that there's more opportunity for primary school teachers to do those things because there is a physical space, for sure. you know, whereas for me, I mean, I've got to yeah. create a resource and put it up potentially, which I see a lot of people do, which is great. But, I mean, most of my resources have got to do with the kids in the room or me disseminating some information or generating discussions. So every resource that I have is only ever a template. It's never something you could really just fully take without putting your own yeah. Been on. So I think it's a little easier in that regard for high school teachers. Yeah. I think the pressure is then greater for primary school teachers to to make the room decorated and beautiful and, and this amazing sensory experience for students as well. Like I, th- I think the yeah. pressure is then greater. Um, and it, it does tend to be the primary school yeah. teachergram that I see that with all the absolutely amazing decorations and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's just easier to take a photo. Like I, I would have yeah, to go exactly. to a lot of effort to take a photo of some of the things I'm doing. Yeah. Yes. And especially when there's rules about photographing students and, and, you know, privacy and all of that. And yeah. And then a lot of what really matters in the classroom, is actually invisible. Like it's, it's intangible. It's stuff that's really hard to just capture a happy snap of. So I, I often think about the visible and invisible aspects of the job and how much teachergram and other and just other accountability measures and administrative measures that we need to do because we need to do them <laughs> these days yeah only really capture the visible stuff and the stuff that's easy to capture which isn't yes. always what matters yeah well it's I think most teachers would agree with that mm. yeah mm. can you describe yourself as a teacher what kind of teacher are you I'm pretty loud but I, I I'm not <laughs> aggressive yeah I'm just a loud okay. sort of person yeah um which kind of worked in a music classroom that was always good I definitely definitely. was the teacher I mean which is makes total sense given the direction my career has taken I was definitely the teacher that kids came to with their social emotional problems but by the end you know I'd been there about five years and I was probably known for one group of my students had a joke about life lessons with Miss Ronalds because I'd always be like talking about the real world and and I was known to be a teacher who cared more about 
the students' emotional world than their grades. You know, not that I didn't care about their grades, but I was often, I would often talk to grade 12s about who were feeling huge amounts of pressure about just the end of grade 12 and the, you know, the academic achievement. And I, you know, and I would often be the one saying, well, don't forget about you, the person, aside from this, you know, grade that you got. And also kids sometimes would disclose to me suicidal ideation. So that obviously would be, something we would have to take very seriously and there's there's steps and processes and referrals that would happen. But, you know, I think I was the teacher that they trusted to tell some of that stuff. Um, yeah. I definitely was relationship-based yeah. in terms of my behaviour management and I, I was fortunate yeah. enough in my last school that I was at to have been there about, you know, five years and small country regional school in Queensland, beautiful kids. I mean, you know, still behaviour management, but yeah. really got to build some deep relationships with those kids because I was in a small school for several years in a row, which was wonderful. So I think yeah. definitely relationship-based. And also, yes, I'm very punny and a bit lame in my humour. Lame's probably yeah. a bit of an ableist word, isn't it? But, you know, uh, sort of daggy, <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> I liken that to steering into a skid, right? You are a teacher. There is something just fundamentally dorky about us and I think it's it's just worth going with it (laughs) yeah absolutely and I also very much with music was especially because I was in a a regional area where a lot of the students were not very they weren't getting private musical education outside like they weren't doing piano lessons or trumpet lessons or you know being part of the Queensland Youth Orchestra or any anything like that like it was very basic level of music but and this comes from my own musical education as well, knowing that we could still make amazing music, even if it was technically not very hard, you know, like it, it could still yeah. be a great contribution to the school community and the local community and, you know, get out there and perform it, you know, the Tagulawa show and all of that sort of thing. So yeah, so wanted to give them as much opportunity to get out there and, and showcase what they could do, even if it wasn't technically yeah, in the musical world, there can be a, a real a real focus on that technical high mm. level, and it's a bit of comparison as well. A similar sort of like if you if you haven't done all your AMEB exams and and yeah. got to the top of the grades there, you know, are you even a musician? And it's like, well, yeah, actually, what's the point of being a musician is to make music yeah. in the community, I think, and to bring people yeah. together. So, you know. We'll go and play at Anzac Day and we'll go and play at the Fate and, and that sort of thing, even if all you're doing is playing a simple four-chord song and it's the same four chords in every single song and you can only yeah. play in one key. But do you know what? Who cares? You're making music. And that was really important to me. Kids, yeah. you know, getting real real-world experience in safe ways, you know, yeah. structured yeah. kind of sta- scaffolded ways, yeah. I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on the qualification. Mm. I had a Deb McNaughton on who's an artist and she did a fine arts degree purely to get into teaching and she is now a full-time artist and she said it took me a really long time to give myself the label of being an artist because I'm like, who gets to decide if I'm an artist? Yes. You know, like, yeah, I have this qualification but yes, is that – enough to say that I'm an artist yeah I'm selling my paintings but is that enough and I'm like I think that experience as you say like yeah. they're a musician they're playing a musical instrument they're making music yeah they're a musician you know when when do you get to just define yeah, that absolutely for yourself I think we need to be able to define those things for ourselves rather than being told once you get this level then you can call yourself well that's so much external validation you call yourself a musician if that's mm-hmm. who you are yeah exactly and if yeah. you're doing it, you know, like because I know a lot of a lot of the people that I can think of that I went through school with who did all their 
Amy B grades and and all of that not playing anymore and I'm probably one of them these days you know I burnt out a little bit musically which is kind of what happens I think to a lot of music teachers you know I think so too work at KFC and you don't want to go home and eat chicken yeah (laughs) yeah becomes the job but I'm getting back into it these days but um yeah you know I would actually I think it's better that students learn some and then don't burn out under the pressure of the kind of the classical world but also the pop music world like it's that that sort of Australian Idol kind of TikTok superstar thing where it's like if you're not you don't have bajillions of followers you're also not a musician um no if you're playing music yes musician I agree do you feel like your belief about what a teacher should be doing in the role of a teacher has evolved or have you had a specific belief the entire time you've been an educator? I think I had some really excellent teachers at school myself who probably shaped my beliefs around what a teacher is and and really around, you know, it is around somebody that encourages students and builds those relationships and also who who doesn't put limits Mm -hmm. on, like you can't play at school fate unless you've reached this certain level of achievement or whatever really you know scaffold opportunities for students to have a go I just think that's really important I think my beliefs that have changed are about the education system and the expectations on teachers and the way it's very difficult to be that kind of teacher anymore because there are so many requirements and it's just such a time poor job these days you know the curriculum is crowded there's so much data gathering and you know administrative tasks that's, that often seem like they're just for the sake of ticking boxes and yep. filling out forms so that in case the courier mail comes knocking on the door we can prove yes. we did what we had to do and not really necessarily about yep. the day-to-day job that that's what's changed for me I think quite significantly in the last 10 years. So I think I had this question later but I'm going to ask it now if you could reinvent the education system to support educators more what would you want to see happen? Mm, so I mean, if we're talking wave a magic wand. Yeah, you you can have your ideal. In a total ideal world, I would halve everybody's workload mm-hmm. overnight. I would make it so that, I mean, teachers would still be full-time teachers but would be like essentially teaching a 60% load. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is sustainable these days. Mm-hmm. Have a lot yeah. more space, therefore, for doing some of those administrative tasks and just a general planning and preparation and marking and reporting just the actual general teaching and learning cycle at school, not at, you know, 10 p.m. at the kitchen table after yeah. after work. That, that I think, the workload it, it would be the number one thing. The other thing I would probably change would be absolutely fair funding um, for public schools. Yeah. I think that, uh, you yeah. know, I have always worked in state schools in Queensland and I've worked in a couple of really low socioeconomic status areas where you know, resourcing was definitely an issue and background of the students was an issue, you know, like that was one of the disadvantages that we were working with in the classroom and that those students were living with day to day. And so I get get pretty angry about the the inequality in our funding system in Australia. So those would be the two things I think. You made the point before about all the administrative tasks. Mm. What do you think about those? Are there things that we could streamline, do you reckon? Definitely. And I think some schools do. I I think it really does depend on the school. I mean, you know, there's a lot that is just part of the job these days that sort of didn't used to be. The curriculum has changed, you know. But, yeah, I I think a lot of the focus on 
data gathering for the sake of data gathering. It's not always yeah. meaningful. Mm. And and again, that that does depend on the school because some schools do their best to make it meaningful and to streamline yeah. that. But also because it takes, it tends to take away from, you know, even just planning for tomorrow. So teachers are sometimes standing in the yeah. in the classroom feeling a bit unprepared for today, <laughs> winging it a little bit because yes. they were filling out yeah. paperwork after dinner that wasn't really about today and wasn't really about <laughs> the, the teaching yeah. and learning cycle. It was just yeah. about this kind of administrative stuff. I think we could definitely streamline. And I, and I think a lot of that is schools can do what they can. You know, it comes down to the principal and the leadership team at the school to to be very, very clear and and very, very discerning about that uh, and giving teachers permission to not do bits that are kind of, they might be the nice to have stuff, but not the must do's, you know, that can yeah. happen at the school and the organisation level, but a lot of it's really departmental and, and um, you know, that yeah. larger system level, which makes it really hard because we don't have control yeah. over that. And I think we've just come out of another lockdown in mm. Victoria and our principal has been incredibly transparent in terms of sharing with us what the government has stated and it's incredibly vague and I understand that you know everyone's kind of doing what they can in emergency situations but the problem is that there's so much open to interpretation and which means there's so much inconsistencies amongst schools because the department puts something out there that really is not all that clear and so you could be ticking the boxes doing it this way you could also be ticking the boxes doing it this way one way might be three times more work for teachers exactly and I will say that's what I think is good about being online because you can start to see that oh there's other ways that things are being done and I put up a poll on my stories about reporting because we've just come out of reporting season some people are still at the end you know yeah. all about this you've had some amazing reels supporting <laughs> reporting teachers but I asked do you do progressive reports or end of semester reports mm. and majority of people do end of semester I then asked what they wanted majority wanted progressive but my inbox filled up with people having to do both a lot a lot of schools make you do both and so some people said it was okay because the progressive reports were all assessment based and the end of semester reports were more about who your student is how they behave things like that so there was there was a role yeah there was a role for both so we weren't double dipping although we weren't crossing over but a lot of staff said we're just constantly doing the same thing mm. and I tutor a number of students that have progressive reporting as well as a semester report and the parents like it's overwhelming yeah I'm constantly getting notifications I don't know what I'm meant to be looking at and then it becomes an expectation that well if I've done something there needs to be assessment up within the week yeah and so it's a really hard one because you can technically do it any way you like. And yeah. so some people are doing both. Yeah, which is where it comes down to, like, you know, two teachers in different schools can have vastly different experiences because one one school is doing so, like, so much more kind of extra than the other school. Yeah. It makes yeah. it so hard. Yes. And I think, look, it's hard for private schools because their stakeholders are obviously very different. Mm. Mm. And so I think it can be also very challenging because parents have a way of, assuming education should be based on their own education experience and so there tends to be that that want for more information I find one of my colleagues is what goes to a private school and they actually put out a survey they said what do you want in terms of reporting she's like I don't want all this stuff and so I think they're taking that on board which is good but I mean you do need to find out rather than just going oh well this parent wants this I'll add it on 
Yeah. Can we take something away? And does the parent really want that or do they just want to know how their student is going, how their child is going? Like sometimes I also think yeah. it comes down to the parent says they want more reporting, they want more information. Does that mean they need more report cards or is there another way that we can actually keep the parents in the loop here? What are they really asking for is to make sure that their kids are okay. Like I want to know that my child is doing okay, doing what they need to do and are not, you know, falling way behind and and I just and I want to make sure that they're having an okay time it doesn't actually like sometimes I think there's a little bit of yes of course we want to ask the parents what they want but also sometimes we need to interpret their answer based on what what are they really asking for here is it more reporting is it more paperwork or is it more of a relationship with the the teacher and, and more reassurance that their student is going okay which means that the surveys can't just be a a yes or no there needs to be here's one question and here's several ways that it could look you know that's the thing you can't just send out one question if you want really really Mm. insightful answers yeah Mm. which then makes a lot of work for the the people creating the surveys and also sifting through the results so it's (laughs) it does you know that's that's why it doesn't always happen properly because it's a lot of work to do that kind of engagement properly I want to talk about the decision to leave the classroom Mm. so you are no longer in a formal classroom no tell me about that yeah and it's interesting because my thinking around this has really I suppose I've been doing another level of processing it's been five years this year since I've been out of the classroom So, so we sort of alluded to it I think earlier I've had some chronic health issues since university days so I I was quite unwell at for a while at university I had thyroid cancer among other things and that meant that it took me a little bit longer to do uni and and then there was my first couple of years of teaching I was full-time but there were some ongoing health challenges that were really were um, a result of not having a thyroid anymore and I also have endometriosis and so just a lot of a lot of painkillers to get through the day once a month and um, just really struggled so in my third year of teaching I was fortunate enough that my school was supportive for me to try part-time and I I went down to initially four days a week and then we we played around for the next couple of years I went back to full-time for a bit went back down to three and a half days a week and then back up to four days a week and then down to three days a week so I did a few we trialed a few different things three days a week really worked for me really worked Mm -hmm. for me and this was so I'm pregnant now but (laughs) I wasn't then yeah and this was this was before even married so yeah. well before thinking about starting a family, but I, I used to just say I'm not as robust as other teachers. You know, I've I've had some significant health challenges in my life, and I'm not as robust. So part time's probably all I can manage yeah. going forward. And then I was so I got married. My husband's job is in a different town to where I was teaching, so it was about a hundred kilometer commute. And I loved that school. If we happened to have lived in that town, I possibly wouldn't have gone down the path that I went down, but I was basically told that to transfer to the town that we live in, which is Toowoomba in Queensland, I would need to go back to full-time teaching. There's no way to get a part-time transfer. This is what I was told at the time. And that was just out of the question. My medical practitioners were extremely clear that that was not to happen. Um, So there was a a sort of a 12-month period where I was still, I was commuting, staying down there, you know, a couple of times a week because obviously... (laughs) 100 kilometers is a long commute Um, beautiful drive though absolutely (laughs) drive Um, and just figuring out what the heck was I going to do especially also because I had this awareness like as somebody who wanted to have a family one day most people's pathway is full-time teaching then 
have some kids take some time out of the workforce and then come back part-time. So there was also a sense of like, if I have a family, I got nowhere to go down. What do I come back half a day a week? That doesn't make sense. You know, so there was kind of a sense also that I'd already probably not left myself much room for that. So it was a really hard decision and it wasn't necessarily a decision that was made overnight. There was a a long period of thinking and I decided to take six months unpaid leave to just live in the one place, not have to commute, not have to. I did a little bit of supply teaching and and by this stage self-care for teachers had started. It was pretty small. It was a Facebook group and, you know, a blog at the time and I um, I had done my, finished my life coaching well-being coaching qualifications on the side because like mentally I was fine but physically I couldn't keep up so I was doing yes. part-time teaching but and doing study as well because yeah. because I could manage that because <laughs> yeah. the study was all from home distance yeah so I took six months off and my health improved enough like yeah. it's not perfect but it was it was a fairly dramatic and obvious change that yeah. I definitely couldn't keep doing that commute and I just knew there was no way I could transfer to Toowoomba and be a full-time teacher. That yeah. was just out of the question, even even with the promise that maybe after a year full-time, the school that I was at would let me go back to part-time. I just didn't, we yeah. just didn't think I would survive, <laughs> so, not survive, but you know, like we just, I wouldn't make it through that no. year of full-time. No. So I made the decision to resign and it was really hard and I grieved my career hard, yeah. <laughs> really, really hard. Yeah. And it's only in the last 12 months that I have actually realized, like I, I didn't engage with the fact that I had chronic illnesses then. I, I didn't think about it that way. I just thought I have these, I've had some challenging health issues in the past and I'm not as robust as other teachers. That's the way I used to yeah. think of it. Yeah. Really in the last 12 to 18 months, I've accept, like kind of accepted, oh, this is chronic illness. This is what my life is going to be. These are my limitations and and learning a little bit about from from chronic illness and disability activists that actually workplaces are obligated to, under the Disability Discrimination Act, they're obligated to provide, you know, accommodations and accessibility options and for people with disabilities and chronic illness. And if I had known that at the time, yeah. I might have pushed back against this kind of this the line that I was given, which was, you'll have to go back to full time if you want to, if you want to get a transfer. That's the only way to transfer to a different town. Actually, in hindsight, I'm not sure that that's the truth. Yeah. I think that might have been the the line. What my good. what my very supportive deputy and principal thought, because yeah. that's probably the line they'd been fed. Yep. But yep. actually, in hindsight, if I'd known what I know now, I might not have felt forced out by the system. Yeah. So who knows? I mean. I'm not unhappy yeah. with my life now, but it it is interesting to think about the fact that it's really not a very flexible career. Yeah, when like people people talk, you know, not teachers talk about oh nine to three and twelve weeks holiday yeah. a year. We've all heard yeah. it. People think it's flexible, but it's actually not a flexible career at all. Yes. And what I actually need is flexibility and some accommodations for my fluctuating health. Yeah, because I'm reasonably. I mean, pregnancy aside, I'm reasonably yeah. well most of the time but I can't push myself the way other people can I can't manage the really long work days you know I have some um, fluctuations throughout the month with endometriosis so working for myself allows me to take that into account yes whereas the school term does not yes I think we're starting to see and I think COVID's been good for this in that if you're sick you don't go to work right because 
Yes, you know, that's absolutely. part of COVID. Like if you if you know you get a COVID test, you have to stay home. Yeah. And that is only starting to shift in my workplace this year. And I saw something recently yeah. about can we please stop giving awards to students for 100% attendance and start absolutely. giving them awards for things like kindness and community engagement and whatever because 100% attendance means students are coming to school unwell. They feel that they can't take a day off. Mm. They feel as though that work they're doing at school is more important than their own health and well-being. And I was like, this is exactly mm-hmm. right. And also one of my family members is now a gut consultant, wasn't originally, but is now like a health gut consultant, which I think is so wild because, I mean, who would have ever been a health gut consultant 15 years ago? I think it's the best. Yep. And yep. she said a lot of the biggest issues she has is that people go, I can't tell people I can't eat that. I can't. Yeah. It's really difficult. You know, I don't want to say that I don't eat gluten because people go, well, why? Why can't you eat gluten? And if you're not a celiac with a a significant issue, well, who cares? If you're not allergic and you're going to die, no one cares. And she said that's been a really big thing is to be able to come to someone's house and go, I can't eat dairy or I can't. It sounds so silly, but we often just absorb things. No, it doesn't. I get it. Yeah, we just absorb things and go, you know what, that's going to make that person uncomfortable. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to eat that and they're going to feel fine. It's going to be inconvenient. And I'm going to go home and be actually chronically unwell. You know, so I don't think there's, and that's a very, as I said, a small situation, but I know I have several friends that have endometriosis and we don't talk about that enough either. The fact that it's not just getting a period once a month, it is debilitating. And I think that, yeah. People need to be okay with the fact that once a month somebody might need a day off, you know, rather than just pushing through yeah. because, yeah. well, you deal with it every month. Yeah, and it's so tricky because I completely agree with you. I think, and, and I think endometriosis has come yeah. a long way in the last five years. Awareness. Like there's been a yes. lot more people talking about it, like Emma yeah. Wiggle talking yeah. about it. You know, there's been a, a lot a lot more kind of public awareness around it. But at the same time also, you know, like for each individual, it's also my private medical information. I don't necessarily want everybody to know about that yeah. all the time. You know, I don't necessarily want to broadcast when I have my period yeah. every month. Like, you know, there's also kind of tricky privacy area yeah. around it, which is which is something that, you know, chronic illness and, and disability activists talk about too is this sense that like having to explain all the time, whereas it, like I, I should just be able to say I have chronic illness, I can't do that or but people want to, and, and I'm happy to talk about it, but people want to know and you don't yeah. always want to talk about it because sometimes people are really well-intentioned. Most of the time people are in, just interested and they want to understand, but sometimes it, it, it you do feel a bit yeah. like you're on trial. Yeah. <laughs> like I have to prove my, you know, that I'm, yeah. that I'm telling the truth here. And you do hear those horrible stories about people, you know, people who park in disability car parking spaces and, then yeah but they're walking you know it doesn't mean they're not disabled but they they can walk and then people come up and give them a hard time about it because they shouldn't be using the car space because they're not disabled enough like you know it's it's a bit of a minefield but I definitely think we do need more normalization because it's something like one in five Australians have a disability or chronic illness it's quite possibly higher higher than that when you take into account the amount of people who have chronic conditions but don't identify with chronic illness. I was which just going to say that we're so, so we're so averse to certain labels, aren't we? It's, it's when you said that, I'm like, there would be people that would not label themselves yeah. as being, you know, somebody who is afflicted with a chronic illness. Oh, I've just got a bit of pain, or somebody who mm. actually has categorically yep. a disability yep. because that's another word they don't want to be associated with. You're totally right, yep. and also because you know, if you if you're just 
despite what the law says about not being discriminated against, if your early career, if you're on a temporary contract, you know, if we're talking just teachers here, if you don't have a sense of job security, or even if you do have, uh, you know, like a permanent job, permanent tenured employment, but, you know, maybe you're very aware that the principal at your school is not very supportive. You know, I've heard from teachers across Australia whose principals have said things to the whole staff like I don't believe in work-life balance you know but clearly portray that that the leadership at that that school is not going to be accepting of alternatives and flexibility and that sort of thing you don't necessarily want to broadcast it either because your job might be on the line um and so you're trying to prove yourself and trying to and like for years I was trying to shake the kind of sick girl because I had yeah, been the sick yeah. girl at university and then I wasn't as sick anymore I, I wasn't as robust as other people but I wasn't sick all the time anymore so I was trying to kind of just for myself prove that I wasn't the sick girl anymore which sometimes meant actually like you said doing things that I kind of knew I'm yeah. going to pay for this tomorrow or I'm going to yeah. pay for this on the school holidays but I'll push through because I don't want to be seen to be different I don't want to be seen to need special treatment I think we can work smart do you know what I mean? I think we need to start talking about that. Yeah. You you are not going to be the best teacher because you work harder than everyone else. And even myself coming back, Absolutely. I've got little kids now, coming back, I can't teach the way that I used to. And it's been a real, I'm, I'm going to say struggle because mm. it has been a struggle because I've all, I was always the one who had all the resources ready yeah. to go. I was always the one that was giving things out. I very, very rarely accepted work from somebody else and I've had to do that coming back and yep. the work is incredible the resources yep. are amazing yeah but there's a part of me that's like but I should be doing that work or I should be working as hard as that person and I'm still in the transition of that mm-hmm. now because I still feel a bit like that yeah it's well it's an identity shift yeah and yeah. I think that there's this real martyrdom in education where we feel as though we need to put yeah. everybody else first, we need to do the best for everybody. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a big part of teachers that go into the profession for that to help others and they put themselves right down the bottom of the list. Mm. We've got to stop doing it. We've really got to stop doing it. Yeah. And, I mean, how many teachers do you hear you yeah. get through the term and everyone's sick on the holidays? You push and you push and you push and that first week of holidays, everyone's yep. sick yep. because you never let yourself take a breath. Yeah, and, and because... <laughs> We actually are yeah. human beings with human bodies. Yeah. We're not robots. We we actually can't keep going without without taking care of our yeah. basic, you know, bodily needs. But so you're so right. It, it is it is a bit of a culture of martyrdom, and also a culture of people yeah. pleasing, yeah. but pe- like system pleasing, really. Because so many teachers that I speak to and work with, and I was absolutely this teacher myself. I was the good student yeah. at school. Yeah. I was the kid who was upset if I got a B plus instead of an A. You know, we have very high expectations on ourselves anyway yeah. to kind of do the best job we yeah. possibly can to get an A on every single piece of our work that we do. And then the system, I think, yeah. absolutely takes advantage of that. And 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 when yeah. I say the system, yeah. I don't mean any one particular person in the system, but The system, the education system has been set up to kind of exploit that about teachers that, you know, our governments benefit from the huge amount of unpaid hours. And I know teaching is a salaried career and I don't think we should look at it as, you know, I'm not at school, so therefore I'm not being paid for these hours 
at home. I don't think it's quite as clear cut as that, but I do think there's a huge amount of unpaid hours or unaccounted for hours. It's that invisible work that that nobody in the education system is accounting for, which is where the scope creep of administrative has happened over the last 10, 20 years. And so, you know, the the education system absolutely benefits from teachers going over and above and and really wearing themselves out Mm -hmm. um, to the point of burnout in many cases and it's not being accounted for and the people paying the price Mm -hmm. are those individual teachers and their families, not the people who should be paying attention to it and doing something about it, you know, the people in charge of the of yeah. the system, but there isn't one person in charge of the system either. So it's all a little bit yeah, And I mean, systemic change shift. is so challenging because it is, you know, it's internalized and it is mm. insidious and, you know, it's not one, just, just one thing and one person and one situation. Yeah. It, it is very hard. I mean, I, yeah. it, yes, it's a huge it's a issue. So I want to talk about your business now, the self-care for teachers. What is your goal with this business? Yeah. What are you hoping to achieve? Probably my goal aside from, you know, trying to make enough money to live. And I will yeah. say, because I know we've talked about this on on yeah. Instagram DMs, it is not my full-time incomes. It has never made me a full-time income. Yeah. It's a, still a side hustle, partly because teachers are at school during business hours. So <laughs> so there's actually yeah. a limited number of hours that I can really actually work with teachers. So I'm a, a wellbeing coach and I work one-on-one with teachers primarily or in small groups to support their wellbeing and put themselves first. But I also have a, a freelance business where I help other businesses with podcasts and digital marketing, yeah. which has come from everything I've learned to set up self-care for teachers. And I run the teacher wellbeing podcast as well. And so I just always like to preface that because I'm not, um, it's not my full-time gig. Yeah. doesn't make me a full-time income yet, maybe one day. But so my goal, I think is actually, it's the cultural change. I would, I know it's not every teacher, but I do think we have a, a, a cultural issue with that sense of martyrdom, that sense of putting ourselves last for the sake of the kids or even for the sake of the paperwork that just has to get done this term without a kind of long-term vision that we can't keep putting out, you can't keep running our body batteries down to the point of utter depletion and expect to have a sustainable career. It just doesn't work that way. Bodies will give up. They they need to be replenished. You know, if we think of it like a battery, you just can't keep driving the car with a flat battery. It does not go anymore. It gets to a point where it doesn't go anymore. So my goal is to change that cultural, uh, th- that culture in education of putting ourselves last. And also I think some of the things that come along with that, which is the the low self-worth, the comparisonitis, you know, that, that kind of all rolls into one. Often the yeah. teachers that I work with who, and they're very insightful, that's usually why they've come to work with me because they recognise that they have some of these patterns that are not them and they want to shift them. But, you know, it is often stemming from a sense of low self-worth in the job or lack of security in the job, which impacts their self-worth, which then makes them feel like they have to work harder or push through to prove themselves to, you know, um, to keep yeah, up yeah. With, the, with the Joneses, um, the Mrs. Joneses um, in the school who, who may be also exemplifying that martyr attitude and it might just be normalised. So I'd love to change that culture. I'd really love to see a widespread teaching workforce who 100% put themselves first knowing that that was the best thing for the students and the best thing for yep. the education system long term because we are heading towards a, a teacher shortage we're already there in many regional areas in the country um you know i have yeah i hear from teachers that they, they're working double time at school because they can't get relief teachers at their school you know wow. so if anyone's sick everyone else has has to work harder because somebody has to be in that classroom yeah 
you know, I do believe long-term if that culture shifted and if every teacher was really, really clear on their worth, on the fact that they're allowed, not just allowed, but actually it's essential to be prioritizing our physical and emotional well-being so that we can continue to do this job long term. Yeah. I think the system would have to change because we would stop being exploited by the yeah. system. I know that's a really big lofty goal and it, it is so much easier said than done and yeah. I know it's much more complicated than that and the way I work on it at the moment is one-on-one yeah. uh, with teachers who are looking at changing those patterns for themselves and who who need a bit of support and accountability to do that. Yeah. And generally those teachers, they may sometimes be seeing a psychologist or a counsellor as well, but generally these are the teachers that I work with are people before they reach crisis stage okay. um, because I'm not a mental health professional. So I do want to make that clear. Um, but I also would like us to, in general in society, but particularly in teaching, to not wait for it to get to crisis situation before we actually take any action for ourselves because that's so often what I see is teachers will come to me, we'll do a discovery session and I actually say to them, you know what, I think you need to go to a psychologist. Like I, yeah. I refer them on because they're actually yeah. really in a crisis stage mm-hmm. and that's not that's not where I can help them. Um, yeah. That's, you know, beyond my beyond my professional boundaries. But also it's sometimes because there's it's been a gradual decline over years and years and they've not actually paused until things got so bad that they couldn't go on. Mm. So I'd like us to not wait for crisis before we look after ourselves. Yeah. And again, easier said than done, I know, because sometimes that's that's the only way we actually wake up and, and listen yeah. <laughs> to and ourselves. It's funny you say that because over the years I've seen a psychologist on and off and I remember mm. her saying to me once, you just need the dump truck sometimes, you need the Mack truck to listen. She goes, can we not? Yep. I'm like, yeah. Yep. And I know that about myself. Yep. Like, I will. Listen to the whispers. Yeah, I'm not cream. very good. I need the boulder thrown at me. Uh, and I'm trying to get better. But I remember her saying that to me. She's like, you need you need the dump truck. And I don't know why. You, you can listen earlier. This year I've, I had a bit of a health situation as well. And I was saying I need to take some time off. And my mates, love them, were saying, oh, but, you know, it's too hard with your, with your year 12s. You know, you can't probably take the whole day. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things that's very hard mm-hmm. when you want to take time for yourself but you know your friends who yeah. want to support you know that you prioritise certain things. And so you also start getting mixed messages as well about, well, maybe I shouldn't Absolutely. take that time, you know. And, I'm look, I'm, I Absolutely. think I'm really guilty of saying that to people as well. Like, you know, oh, well, maybe come and teach you your 12s, you know, and it's a hard one because yeah. when it's so hard. when do we get to say I'm going to take the time? I know I have year yeah. 12 or I know I have a really important class, but no, I'm going to take time off. Yeah, it's so hard. I, I absolutely acknowledge that. Yeah. And the thing that I would probably just ask teachers to reflect on, and this doesn't mean you need to change anything right away because, again, it's very difficult and I recognise that. And it's very difficult, especially if you are in a school that was already in a teacher shortage because you're very aware yeah. of the impact that that would have then also on your colleagues as well. So I acknowledge that it's very challenging. But I would ask teachers to reflect on how bad it needs to get before they would have to prioritise themselves. It's a good point. I often have teachers come to work with me about two years after they've reached that point and they're finally yeah. back in the classroom and they never want to get to that point again. They've, they've learned the lesson the hardest way possible. You yeah. know, some people end up hospitalised with, with health issues and then you really can't 
be in the classroom because you are in the hospital hooked up to stuff. I've had teachers thinking they were having a heart attack when it was, you know, maybe panic attacks or anxiety, but really yeah. impacting their lives. Eventually, unfortunately, if we keep ignoring it, it, it often does get to the point where you can't think about anything. You can't do anything else. Yeah. And so I always try and encourage teachers to just reflect on how bad it would have to get before they absolutely couldn't keep going in just for the year 12s or just for this or that and to maybe think about what small things that we could change day to day, week to week that would prevent us getting to that point. It's so hard. I don't want to sugarcoat it and there's no one right. There's no one size fits all. There's no one solution that's going to work for everybody. But it's it's worth considering because I have seen the results when people completely burn out. Because I also think we throw the yeah. word burnout around a bit, but real burnout is is when people yeah. lose their careers because they're actually yeah. incapacitated by the yeah. physical and emotional effects, and they can't go back in the classroom. And so I think we yeah. we need to think about that. It stems from the fact that we're in survival mode all the time, just trying to get through this term. Yeah. We're not thinking yeah. about, well, how bad will it be if I just get through this term and next term and then term after that and the term after that and then I completely collapse in two years' time. Yeah. I mean, proactivity is hard when we're already at capacity, but if we can yeah. just little by little rein it in. I have a, a bit of a metaphor that I use when I talk about resilience. Resilience in education and psychology is is talked about differently to the way they talk about resilience in engineering and, um, you know, the built yeah. environment. Okay. It's, it's just blew my mind when I found this out. When you hear engineers or, you know, infrastructure people talking about resilience in the built environment, they're talking about staying online during emergencies and natural disasters and that sort of thing. So, like, they're not designing the bridge hoping it's never going to flood. <laughs> they're going, it's one day it's going to flood. And, you know, there's the 50-year flood that will be this level and the 75-year flood that will be this level and the 100-year flood that will be this level. We may maybe can't make this bridge 100-year flood proof, but we can definitely make it 25-year flood proof. And so they're actually planning for the worst-case scenario and then maintaining yeah. maintaining that, that asset, that piece of infrastructure for, you know, for those flood times for those natural disaster times so that when the natural disaster comes that piece of infrastructure can can stay online you know it might be damaged but it's still functional and I think we so often think about resilience in education as bouncing back after the fact that we're not we're we're almost building the bridge and praying it doesn't rain and that's just we just don't think about the realities of life because sometimes what sometimes what's going to floor a person is they're surviving, but then they go through a divorce or a, an illness yep. or an injury and it's not their fault. You know, it's just life happened and yep. there's nothing left in the tank for when that yep. extreme adverse event happens. So I'd really love us to start talking about resilience from that kind of like planning for the flood, knowing it's one day it's going to flood. And I think COVID yeah. has taught us a bit of this that, that yeah. we need to have something in the tank for when that happens. I'm mixing yes. my metaphors there quite obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand what you're saying though. I love that. Mm-hmm. And my next question was going to be, what are some simple things you can suggest to teachers that are overwhelmed? And, you know, you can hear I've got a, you know, blocked nose at the moment because I've just finished reports. I've got little kids at home. Mm-hmm. You know, my health has definitely not been the priority. Yeah. And what are things that you would recommend just to sort of 
support people in those overwhelmed situations, not the burnt out, not necessarily needing the one-on-one coaching, but just the simple steps to allow them to get back to a place of putting themselves first yeah, or prioritizing their health. Number one, self-compassion. Cause if you're, if you're in that mode, I just want you to, you know, recognize that it's hard um, and that it's okay yeah. that it's hard. That is probably my number one tip is boundless self-compassion and recognizing that, okay, maybe I'm a bit run down at the moment and I need to, I need to ease up on my actual commitments or ease up in my yeah. mind on the amount of pressure I'm putting yeah. on myself, you know, giving myself a hard time because I didn't get everything done, but I'm actually really worn out. So I think yeah. self-compassion is number one. And then the other thing that I would say is think about what makes what makes you the most depleted most quickly. What So where's the biggest bang for your buck going to be in terms of what you change? That might be sleep. You know, it might be saying, okay, if I haven't had a good night's sleep, I'm kind of hopeless and everything else gets a lot harder so I need to just really exercise nutrition whatever sleep has to be my priority or it might be managing stress you know it might be making sure that we have every single day one activity that just helps us manage our stress you know it's going to be different for everybody I have a a good friend who is a head of department and she's got two little kids and you know two working parents, life is just full on. And she said one of the biggest changes they made was ordering the groceries online. (laughs) And it just, it was like, just take this pressure off that one of us has to go to the freaking supermarket every week and brave the crowds on a Saturday and, you know, just order the groceries online, get a cleaner, whatever you you can do that actually just takes a little bit of pressure off. And those may not be options for everybody, but thinking about what that biggest bang for your buck will be and what's achievable because you know if you've got little kids yeah. you may not be able to get a full night's sleep because it's not yeah. necessarily in your control but what else could you do that, yeah that's right that yeah. might just take a bit of the pressure off I saw something about decision fatigue and I've mm. had so many conversations with teachers about I think that's why we are so exhausted because we're constantly making on the spot decisions all the time mm. and so reducing decision-making at home, like, you know, meal plan on a Sunday. So you know exactly what you're having. You don't have to come home and think about what's for dinner. It's all done. Things like that I think help me a lot, reducing my decisions and also taking things off my plate. Like when I wasn't feeling particularly well, I had podcasts booked and I had to – and it's not like me. I don't like letting people down, but I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have to reschedule. I can't do this. Yeah. I often find too one of my biggest wake-up calls is what I start to eat. Yeah. If I'm starting to not prioritise what I'm actually eating – I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm not a good, I'm not in a good place, or I'm starting to let things slip. That's yes. not my first wake up call for me. Is what I eat. Yeah, recognizing those warning signs, and you know, it, it's going to be different for everybody. For some people, it's going to be, oh, yeah. I'm starting to scroll. You know, first thing in the morning, I'm, I'm yeah. just getting the phone and getting stuck into a scroll down the Instagram rabbit hole or the TikTok rabbit hole. You know, I'm, it's going to be different for everybody. But recognizing those warning signs, and yeah, just paying attention to what makes the what depletes the body battery the most and is the thing that if it doesn't happen, everything else is harder, which might be food. It might be exercise. It, you know, it might be yeah. actually I just need somebody else to clean the house because I just cannot even handle it, you know, yeah. and yeah. and normalising that that's okay and actually that's the reality. Stop comparing ourselves to this ideal Instagram wellness influencer perfection and actually saying, no, yeah. this is the reality <laughs> of of the job throughout the school term. These are the demands that are on me. This is what I can actually, this is what I actually have capacity for. Yes. And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes I'll comment or, you know, respond to somebody's stories on Instagram and 
the conversation that follows is very different to what I've seen. Mm. And I do think teachers want to be authentic and teachers want to be open about what's going on. I don't think that there's, you know, like a marketing system going on here where they're just like, I want everyone to think that I'm perfect. I think it's very hard in those posts and on stories to really convey the reality. But that's what I often find is if I post, I'm like, oh, my God, that's that's incredible. I'll get a DM going, oh, but this happened and this happened and this happened. I'm like, well, thanks for letting me know that. So I do think teachers want to be able to be honest, but I think the platform is a very limiting platform in terms of how honest you can really be. I agree. I think also because education is a small world and, again, when we are being honest about maybe what's really going on for us when we're being, we don't want to be yeah. too vulnerable because we don't want it to affect our job, whether right. that whether that is our day-to-day job, because especially people who have public profiles, you know, you don't necessarily know who's viewing that content. It could be your principal. It could be the student of that most, or the parent of that most, most challenging behavior in yeah. your class. And so you don't That's necessarily, right. you don't necessarily want those people to know that you're having a rough That's time right. or that your relationship is breaking down or that you're, you know, having some chronic health issues before you're ready to share it and kind of own the narrative. So it, it's That's really, it. it's a really tricky thing because we want to be authentic, but we also don't want to be, I think Brene Brown has a line about vulnerability is not live streaming your bikini wax. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> there's vulnerability totally, yeah. and then there's yes. almost oversharing and an invasion of privacy and when it's when it's that personal professional blurred line that that many many people's profiles are on the on the teacher gram you do have that kind of extra awareness that I don't want this to impact my job I might be going through a tough time and I might have told a few of my closest colleagues but I don't necessarily want it to be common knowledge and I and I just don't want it to impact my job I don't want to be seen to be not capable. I don't want to miss out on opportunities because, you know, the principal saw that on Instagram I was having a rough week. I don't necessarily want to be or feel safe to be honest about that. Yes. I'd love to ask you what some of the biggest lessons you've ever learned in life have been. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think the the message that I send with self-care for teachers is the biggest lesson I had to learn myself, which is that you're a person first mm. and a teacher second. Like, and And I say that a lot. But I think many teachers, us, our identity as a teacher can be so much intertwined with who we are that we actually don't separate the two, and that's very common. And so that that's probably the biggest lesson for me is that I'm I'm a person first, and my achievements, my professional life, my productivity, my everything else is separate to who I am and and my worth as a human being. And also, mm. I have to prioritize the the person. Because otherwise the the teacher doesn't function. I have to prioritize the the person, the human. Otherwise, I can't go on doing any of those other things. And and I have you know I learned some of those lessons particularly long, young, particularly hard. Um, I had some big wake up yeah. calls at university, obviously. But yeah. but even then, I got out into the quote unquote real world and didn't necessarily yeah. embody it until years down the yeah. track. Until kind of having to. Yeah have a few more <laughs> boulders thrown my way. Um, yeah. So yeah. that would be my biggest lesson. Yeah, I get that. I get that scenario. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. well, probably recognising that that I'm not just a, a a brain on a stick. I have a body <laughs> that yes. has yes. 
some requirements that are not needy, are not weak, are not lazy. I just, I have an animal body that needs to be taken yeah. care of like a pet sometimes. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. we're so yeah. much nicer to our pets than we are to ourselves. Yeah. It's making sure they've got yeah. food and shelter and sleep and we're not giving that to ourselves. Yeah, that's such a good point, isn't it? Because I think we're very intellectual as teachers. We sit in that intellectual brain a lot Absolutely. and we can logicalize things. But you're right, there needs to be that balance and care for our actual human body yeah before I end I want you to I want you to explain the quote where you talk about reducing the scope because I love this yeah so stick to the schedule share it with everybody before we end yeah so and this comes from that kind of that many teachers have this sense that I've got to get an a plus on everything that I do you know I have to be I have to be doing everything a hundred percent because anything less is not good enough yeah and so we very regularly set up when it, when it comes to well-being and that's what I'm talking about when I when I say stick to the schedule reduce the schedule when it comes to our well-being uh, you know our, our personal habits our health habits um and our self-care practices so often I speak to teachers who have set these beautiful goals for themselves beautiful plan yeah. for the habits that they're going to stick with throughout the school term they're going to go to pilates five times a week and you know cook every single meal from scratch and meditate for an hour a day and just like this amazing list of beautiful self-care health habits and sleep eight hours every single night and yeah. all of the rest and it's just unsustainable <laughs> by about week yeah. three of, of the term yeah. from week three to week nine yeah. That's not going to happen. And so, and and also te- teachers, I find, I think this is a human thing, but a lot of teachers that I work with relate to it, that sense of all or nothing. So I was going to go to Pilates four times this week. I missed it on Monday because the staff meeting went over. So that's it for the week. Hang on a minute. <laughs> we don't have, you know, it's You're not right, all right. That's so true. Um, yeah. we, and yeah. and so it's about it's about cutting ourselves some slack we don't have to be a plus level effort and achievement all the time and also that the reality of the school term is that you know there's going to be days many days where things don't go to plan we don't get out of the staff meeting on time or there's an incident at school and we've got to do the paperwork after school you know fill out the incident reports or whatever so the day kind of the plan for the day gets derailed and we miss that exercise class or we get home late or whatever things are going to get derailed and also there comes points there are there are peak times in the term we all know them report card week parent teacher interviews week the week before the school musical you know there's going to be times in the term where actually there's not there's there's not a lot of time left (laughs) and so it's about cutting ourselves some slack to say what can I still, I can't do my perfect, ideal Instagram perfection, healthy habit list this week, but what could I still do that would be meeting those needs in some small way? So I'm allowed, I'm allowed to do it at the C level instead of the A plus. Yeah. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. I'm actually allowed to kind of half-ass it. And also I can, I can stick to the schedule that I set for myself. So I said I was going to go for a walk every day this week. I was planning to do 45 minutes. I, that's not going to happen. Can I do 15 minutes? Can I stick yeah. to that schedule of I said I was going to do something for me every single day this week. I can't do the whole thing. Can I reduce the scope so I still have ticked that box for myself today? I haven't completely ignored it and completely let that let that fall by the wayside. And I'm also kind of maintaining so that when the peak time in the term 
is over, I can ramp up again when I've got a little bit more time, a little bit more energy because stopping and starting habits is so much harder than just maintaining in a small way and, and flexing the amount that we do based on the amount of time and energy that we have. It's such a good piece of advice, Ellen. I love it so much and it makes so much sense. And I wonder too, that connection to needing it to be perfect and being that A plus because we were were sort of educated in this system where we were told we had to be at that level and then we're working in that system, Mm -hmm. which is kind of... We're we're perpetuating that system. Well, yeah, yeah. It's a little cultish almost where you feel like you've got to keep that up. And it's funny because it's almost like, well, if I can't do it, I'm not going to even bother, but then I'll just ramp this up and then I'll be so good at this, which ends up being work. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and it's not always taking into account the reality of, you know, it's sort of coming from that rose colored glasses perspective, which we can sometimes get into at the start of, you know, sorry, the end of the holidays, the start of term where we think this term's going to be different. I, you know, last term was terrible for these reasons. I'm not going to do any of that again. Yeah. Hang on a minute. That's also not how humans change. We don't expect yeah. our students to go from grade two to grade six overnight. They yeah. don't do that. They they gradually Gradual. change. It's Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. It's the same thing when it comes to, you know, our, our human health and well-being and habits. Like we've actually got to do it step by step, gradual. And change yeah. is often two steps forward, one step back. So setting ourselves up for that kind of this term's going to be completely different. I'm not going to do any of those things that I did last yeah. term that got in the way it's actually probably unrealistic you probably are going to do a lot of those things because that's how you get through the term yeah what are the what are the two things that you could maybe change don't worry about the rest just pick those two yeah thank you so much for your time and you've just given i think so many tired teachers a little bit of hope i'm (laughs) I'm hopeful for after all this report time i hope so yeah, it's. I'll make sure that you send me all your info. I'll put it all in the show notes so people can connect yeah. with you and listen to your podcast. And, you know, you are doing amazing things, Ellen. Oh, thank you. Because I'm trying. Little no, you are. Little, and, I, you know, I think we all have to take it one term at a time. Yeah. But if we all make incremental shifts each term, that adds up to a lot. Like 5% each term is is going to add up to a lot over the next three years of your career, yeah. um, you know, you can actually make changes in your life and prioritize your well-being and be less depleted at the end of every term, even if it's just five percent less depleted at the end of every term. That adds up over time. It has a comp. It's a compound um, yes. thing. So that's what I hope to leave teachers with, and just to be really realistic and practical about the job demands. Yeah, it is hard. It's you know, this is yeah. this is not perfect Instagram influencer world. <laughs> this is real world. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just going to do what we're going to do to get through. But yeah. how can we do that with a little bit more thought to ourselves in the long term as well? Thank you so much. I really appreciate having this conversation. Me too.